Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Ballot Box. This week we're going to be talking about the recent elections in Zambia, which resulted in a a rather surprising opposition victory. We're joined this week by uh, a special guest, Michael Bancoli, who's a PhD researcher at King's College London and who uh, regular listeners will remember as appearing on a few episodes in the past. Last time we had him on was talk about Uganda, which, which was a rather less bright results, I think. And we had a a long conversation then about uh, the state of democracy in Africa. And hopefully this election offers a little bit more hope in that direction than than that one did. But yeah, before we before we begin, um, how is everyone? Mike, how how have you how have you been? Yeah, I've been good. It's a summer, you know, so trying to enjoy my summer, you know, get out to some friends, obviously got a PhD (laughs) to finish as well. So (laughs) <laughs> um, that's my mind as well but no I've been, I've been good and I'm delighted to be here with with some, some of my friends to discuss uh, a really nice election I think so it's going to be a really nice one to discuss so uh, yeah looking forward to it yeah no worries it's really great to have you on as always um, yeah and Andres I believe um, you've been facing some rain and more since we last spoke <laughs> that, that's right um, I endured the uh, Hurricane Henri which passed very parallelously close to my house, my house in Brooklyn and, and gave us 36 hours of nonstop rain. Um, it was, it was bad. It was very wet, but now things are drying up. So <laughs> things are looking up. <laughs> I'm also very happy to, to, to have Mike on, um, an old friend and obviously also a fellow podcaster from the Politics Jam podcast, which is you know, a plug, a plug for that great podcast. <laughs> Uh, and and how are you, Chris? How's Manchester? Oh, uh, I'm very well. Um, I'm looking forward to having a, a pretty good week. I've got a friend visiting um, starting this evening. And then on Saturday, I'm going to Bucharest with my partner to see her family for, uh, for a week and a half. So uh, looking really forward to enjoying lots of Romanian delicacies <laughs> and, <laughs> and probably having alcohol shoved in my face every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that's must have been quite a long time since you've been over now at this point. No, yeah, I obviously the pandemic has, my, mm. um, my partner went over last year, but um, obviously I've not been over um, since the pandemic period. Um, yeah, she had to quarantine when she went last year, but I'm looking very forward to it. <laughs> how about you, Johnny? How how are things in in London? Are you ready for the for the new semester? Have you already started? Um, well, given how slow UK academia seems to be running this year, I don't actually have mm. all of the classes that I'm supposed to be teaching lined up yet. Um, I've got a few of them, but not not everything. Um, the significant thing today is that I completed a first of my PhD which is now ready to be sent off um, which feels momentous and now I don't really know kind of how I'm supposed to feel about it to be honest uh, it's, a, it's a weird thing I never thought would actually actually ever happen <laughs> That's fine. there you go so, yeah good to good to be good to be distracted congratulations thanks guys <laughs> okay all right um so we'll we'll get on to get on to Zambia then what would we say were the kind of main headlines um to take away from this election 
Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's it's seen as a victory for democracy, if you like, and it's uh, in a period where I think we are seeing a kind of backsliding of democracy, not just in Africa, but like around the world. This is being seen as a you know step in the right direction, especially following where we also kind of see a nice story with an election. Um, I think yeah, this is a a really positive election and for Zambia. Zambia has often been held as one of the kind of beacons of democracy in Africa because we've seen these consistent, you know, peaceful transfers of power between you know different presidents. And you know, this election is another kind of you know part of that story. It's the third time, you know, power has changed hands at the ballot box, you know, both peacefully and democratically in in Zambia. And look, you know, Zambia is going through a rough time economically. We're going to speak about this a bit later, I'm sure. But economically, there are some huge problems with debt which obviously works against the incumbent, you know, people, uh, you know, people are unemployed, you know, there's, there's, there's high levels of youth unemployment, you know, there's high levels of poverty and deprivation, you know, people are unable to buy, you know, vital commodities and are having to make sacrifices financially in terms of the things they can and can't buy for their household. So it has been a rough time for, for Zambia and, and there is hope that, you know, with the election of Hichilema, we will see, you know, more positive times in Zambia. So, yeah, I mean, I was on here last time to speak about Uganda, which was a, like a far less cheery story. But I feel like this is, you know, we hope it's going to be, this this, this election is going to usher in a, a more cheerful and hopeful period for Zambia and Zambian politics. I agree with those headlines. Yeah, it seems like a, surpri- <laughs> a surprising victory for um, the opposition when, when there was an incumbent president and, and party who were doing their best to make elections um uncompetitive um and you know they had been ruling through kind of fear and repression so absolutely i agree with mike yeah andres i actually read a crazy stat like the other day about presidents in africa and apparently like 88 percent of incumbents win elections huh. in africa so this is a genuinely remarkable result mm. because you know we'll speak about the later for sure but there were barriers and like all kinds of hurdles placed in front of the opposition mm-hmm. and the fact that they've won with a landslide victory is just it's genuinely remarkable because this, yeah. this should not happen <laughs> yeah 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 i mean, have you ever heard of the um i don't know if you guys have ever heard of the mo ibrahim prize the um it's like a it's a prize that's awarded to the african lead to the to an african leader who steps down every year which has a <laughs> funded by a founded by a an african um millionaire um and uh, basically the point of it is is that one reason why african leaders try to t- stay on for as long as they do is that unlike western leaders they often have um very few ways to make kind of significant amounts of money after they leave leave office so the idea is uh, basically, I'll attach this cash prize to if you step down from from, from leadership to try and encourage people to do that. Mm. Um, doesn't award it every year, but um, because sometimes no one steps down. Um, but um, theoretically, it's supposed to be an annual prize. <laughs> yeah, I think this would be what our former course convener Cheryl would refer to as a liberalising electoral outcome, which is <laughs> the first one that we've, um, I think covered on this podcast as well which is quite which is quite nice yeah they don't happen too often but yeah this is this yeah. quite a nice event yeah you could maybe argue moldova but like in a much more limited mm. way <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i we are 
I think we're gathering a reputation on the ballot box as having a bit of being sort of constitutional design nerds. So we always like to like to kind of uh, set up what the institutional setup is um, in, in the country that we're discussing. So, yeah, so Zambia is, you see, is a, a former British colony, but doesn't have a a kind of classic Westminster parliamentary system as a presidential system, which is not uncommon for um, former British colonies in Africa, at least. Um, but yeah, so what what are they kind of... Uh, what are we looking at here? Is this a very standard presidential model? Well, there's a there's a runoff system, and um, presidents can be re-elected re after the first five year term, but they can only be re-elected once. And it's a unicameral legislature, um, and and the parliament is called the National Assembly. The National Assembly uses first past the post. Mm. So up to now, we have like a pretty standard setup, first past the post, legislative to round system. But then yeah. here's where Zambia, here's where there are a few quirks to, to the Zambian constitutional setup. The first of which is that the, um, the National Assembly has 150 seats that are elected through first past the post, but then up to eight can be appointed by the president, depending on whether he or she considers it necessary to, quote, according to the constitution, represent special interests or readdress or redress gender imbalance, right? Mm -hmm. In addition to those eight, uh, up, to, up to eight seats that can be appointed by the president, there are three ex officio members, which means basically three members that are not, that are also not elected and that become part of the parliament. One is the president himself, the other is the speaker of the National Assembly and the vice or the deputy speaker of the National Assembly as well. Mm. So um, I, I, I don't know of other um, legislative kind of setups where the president can basically name assembly members or, le or members of the legislature. At least in the lower house, yes. At least, yeah. right, at least in the lower house, exactly, at least in the lower mm. house. Um, and this combination of elected and non-elected members of Congress is, is pretty interesting. Um, and eight for, you know, a total, eight members from a total of 160 is not insignificant. It's not negligible because that could mean the difference yeah. between a majority, obviously, and a, and a minority. It's, it's yeah. Quite a large number. Yeah. Sense. I think it's worth noting there as well that um, given that the parliamentary election is held on the same day as the presidential election um that means yeah typically people will vote for the same party on both ballots you would imagine as in most countries so it, um so it's very unlikely that you're going to get anything that is either not a majority or very close to a majority so those eight seats could be quite um, important in cases where the party falls just short of a majority um, because you presume that a president would nominate people who would be more likely to vote alongside So from what I can gather, Zambia is, is, a, is a country which has a history of um, uh, for, for the for the region um, has had reasonably long experiences of kind of uh, of democracy, but is one which has gone through these kind of cycles of um, authoritarianizing and democratizing sort of periods. Um, so yeah, and mm. what 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 is exactly is is Zambia's kind of democratic history here? Oh sure, uh, sure. So on um, on the foundation of the country, the um, first president was a man called Kenneth Kaunda. 
who um, w w led a party that was essentially a, a splinter from kind of independence movements from kind of notionally from its left. And he um, he started off with operating in a kind of relatively multi-party democratic framework, albeit he claimed to want a one-party state, but a one-party state where he won democratically. Um, but... Uh, um, and it had some kind of laudable aspects too. So, for example, he, unlike some other African countries, he put a lot of pains into making sure that the cabinet was um, quite multi-ethnic and represented kind of different tribes. So, um, and, and put a lot of kind of work into appearing to be this kind of national figure. Um, around the 70s, um, he was losing popularity and so was his party. There was a kind of threat that the other two parties against him might gang up and take control of uh, parliament together. Um, so he essentially suspended democracy altogether and um, banned other parties and moved to a kind of, uh, to a, a legally one party state. Um, and, and during this period, the, uh, which lasted until 1990. Um, the, the kind of big opposition to him was uh, amongst the um, was amongst the trade union movement, um, and the trade union movement ended up um, launching um, as he reintroduced multi-party democracy in 1990. A party called uh, the Movement for Multi-Party Democracy. Which is a fantastic party day, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, uh, which um, won the 1991 elections in a huge landslide. Their um, their leader, um, who was the former head of the Trade Union Confederation, won more than 70% of the vote. Um, but while in power, uh, he then started to make moves towards. Uh, a more authoritarian context of his own, in particular, kind of working against Hans's former par uh, party, the uh, UNIP, um, it's a, who ended up boycotting the 1996 elections. And, um, and then there was the election of 2001, which was incredibly controversial. Um, they, the multi-party, the movement for multi-party democracy one, but um, amongst a lot of allegations of rigging, and also because at that point, Point Zambia used a um, first past the post system to elect the president, one office with less than 30% of the vote um, in a very kind of fragmented context. Um, and then finally, they lost power in 2011 to the Patriotic Front. Who are the who were the incumbents in essence before this election? Um, I think Andreas has done, has uh, read a little bit more than I have on the more recent history. Uh, if you want to, yeah, I mean, th thanks for that. You're, um, I'm always amazed at how well, you, uh, how good you are at synthesizing large chunks of history. And yeah, yeah. definitely, this is kind of what um, what Mike was talking about in, in terms of like the particular history of Zambia um, in 2011. The Vitratic Front um, was elected with Michael Sata as the as the president, but then you know Sata died in 2014. Um, 
he died from, apparently from a heart attack, although the illness wasn't disclosed. Um, and I'm not sure if it's already been disclosed. Um, he was in London. The, with, there was a year to go for his term and there was, a, there was like a special election. And um, Lungu ran for that election and he won very narrowly. So he won with 50.35% uh, of the vote versus 47.63 um, uh, of the runner-up. So he just narrowly beat Hichilema's uh, party, although Hichilema was not, was not the opposition candidate, so he narrowly won. Then um, he ran for, for like the regular five-year term in 2016, and then he ran once again um, just now in 2021, after uh, kind of saying that, that that was his second term. And this is where things also start to get a little complicated because there's a constitutional controversy as to whether or not that last year that he was president of Zambia um, counted as a presidential term. And so there were several lawsuits suggesting, you know, trying to make the case that the constitution is very clear that presidents can only be elected to two terms. Um, but the constitutional court ruled on three occasions that a full year did not count as a term and terms only counted as five-year terms. So they allowed Lungu to run for this, you know, third, you know, on, on a second occasion um, for like a second full, full five-year term, third yep. kind of, um, yeah, general term. Um, I mean, this, this obviously raises the, the question of like presidential terms and re-election, something that actually we began the podcast with. It's always kind of um, awkward when a president overstays her or his uh, time in, in office mm -hmm. and, and the, the constitutionally set limits. It's part of what makes the presidential system dif different from the parliamentary system or from most parliamentary systems and that there are very fixed number of times that a single individual can can run for a re-election or fixed number of years that that the that the term lasts obviously so um and and this kind of constitutional controversy came in the context of a generally kind of repressive or a set of re repressive acts from the government versus uh civil society and also opposition so from the since the presidency of michael stata the patriotic front has been seen by many as kind of chipping away at hard-won rights, hard-won rule of law, and also electoral competitiveness. Under President Lungu, um, it got worse. So Amnesty International, International wrote a report that uh, said that killing and brutal crackdown against dissent set the tone for the August election. And then that report kind of proceeds to recount the fact that police arrested a 15-year-old boy, and charged him with three, three accounts of criminal libel after he allegedly criticized President Lungo on Facebook. I mean, this is just kind of one of the many examples that the Amnesty International Report has to show the extent at which um, the government was being used to kind of repress political opposition and, and, and kind of curtail civil rights. Um, in 2019, the leader of the Patriots for Economic Progress, which is another um, political party in Zambia, Sean Dembo, was arrested on a charge of defamation for questioning the purchase of a $400 million presidential jet, um, despite the fact that the country was amid crisis. A critical newspaper, The Post, was forcibly shut down and liquidated over a tax dispute. Um, in April 2020, the government revoked the broadcasting license of the country's leading private television station, 
Prime TV, and no, no reason was given. Public meetings by political opposition and civil society have been restricted on grounds of COVID-19. Healthy uh, health, health and safety regulations. Kichilema was summoned by the police in an ongoing investigation that many believe is made up. And then when supporters showed up to protest and to kind of you know support Hichilema and kind of like uh, protest the government's uh, investigation into into political opposition, um, the police were quite violent and and, and killed um, and shot at least one of the protesters. So and and maybe kind of if if more kind of acts of repression were needed or had to be documented in order for us to kind of understand the context of repression in which this election took place. Lungo, Lungu tried to pass Bill 10, um, which, which was essentially a law that stripped the legislative from, from oversight over the presidency um, and, and, you know, kind of threatened what a, a professor of law, Ndulu, called uh, creating a constitutional dictatorship. So um, the, the last, the last, yeah, the last uh, six years have been pretty bleak, I think, in terms of the repression that Zambians have undergone and especially the opposition. Um, and Lungo was very much identified as being part of, you know, kind of the head of this, uh, I don't know, erosion of civil rights um, and electoral competitiveness. Yeah, I, I think you both do a kind of good job of the history. I think the recent period is defined by what I would call kind of creeping authoritarianism. And it begs the question, why wasn't Lungu voted out in 2016, right? So that's what people might be thinking. Like, you know, there were some worrying signs before the election 2016 that, you know, Zambia was heading in the wrong direction. And we've spoken about, you know, this, the idea that Zambia has had elections in the past where we have seen the peaceful transfer of power. So if someone's acting in this authoritarian way, why isn't he voted out? Well, actually... He manages to like stay in power by like the skin of his teeth because of his authoritarianism, right? So opposition leaders are placed in prison, newspapers are shut down, and he I think he wins by like a really tiny margin in 2016, like the tiniest margin, and he stays on. And you know, this period, like the sort of last period leading up to this election, has been defined by, you know, crackdown on civil liberties, you know, the erosion of kind of democratic standards in Zambia, you know, human rights violations. The opposition have been arrested. I think Kichilema, who won the election this time round, has been arrested several times. I think he was arrested shortly after the election in 2016. So we are seeing some, we, we, we had seen some really worrying signs in Zambia in the build up to this election. And, you know, Lungu was at the heart of this. Lungu was at the heart of the kind of brutalization and the crackdown on the opposition, the crackdown on media, both kind of independent and state media. Um, he was just um, acting in very kind of authoritarian ways. So, yeah, I think the last the last period has definitely been a fine what I would call kind of creeping authoritarianism. It's interesting that this has happened. To, it's interesting to me that this happened like a, like on a number of occasions that you've had this democratizing force come in and then succumb to this kind of temptations of of kind of being more authoritarian as well. Um, do what do we do? You think there's any kind of particular explanations that are behind this this pattern of, of why this kind of the, the the temptations of power almost uh, are kind of um, uh, in in Zambia are kind of corrupting these these figures that come in with this this more kind of democratizing ethos. I, I wonder if to some extent it's just a kind of 
for a country that has a kind of history of you know of interchange between authoritarianism and democracy whether it's just a case that the incentives are so much there for authoritarianism um in terms of the spoils of power are uh, I can can you know as with like what I was saying with the Mo Ibrahim prize, losing power means losing access to a lot of uh, to um, a huge difference in terms of your access to wealth and privilege and opportunity. That um, and in some ways, perhaps the surprising thing is that. Zambia keeps kind of shunting back towards democracy um, compared to, you know, a lot of similar countries in the region. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of um, late 19th century uprising in Mexico under under the the slogan of uh, no re-election. And then the guy who who headed the uprising stayed in power for the next 30 years <laughs> so you know um only yeah. actually to be deposed in the mexican revolution by a younger yeah. guy who had the exact same slogan of no re-election so yeah um it's it, yeah i it's 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 all it's when politics is is, is a kind of when the stakes of ruling a country are so high it's yeah. very hard to relinquish power yeah um, yeah and you can tell that for example by the fact that there was a party called the movement for multi-party democracy that became such a great name. more more authoritarian <laughs> with time um, yeah it started kind of cracking down on opposition parties um, and making elections yeah yeah yeah, yeah. incredible um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, some. I mean, in a way, relinquishing power is the is the weird thing to do, right? Um, yeah. And 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 kind of like Europe and the U.S. Although the U.S., you know, even the U.S., it was like, oh, to twenty. Um, it was close. It was close. Uh, <laughs> there's already a prominent uh, non-relinquisher in power, and then you know, someone who wanted to <laughs> remain in power. But um, we were sometimes, I think, uh, prejudiced by our the, his, the historical period we were lucky enough to have been born in, where yes. <laughs> there's a kind of a mass of part of systems, a kind of large number of systems where, where people do actually step down peacefully. But historically, historically this is quite the anomaly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like the opposite of like what Pazorski said. Pazorski said that, um, you know, you don't necessarily need to have Democrats in a democracy because um, because um, it, it, within a democracy, it, hopefully it becomes rational not to step down, uh, to step down and to work within the system. Um, but if you if you're... You know, if you're within a system where, for whatever social reason, it um, remains in your interest to not relinquish power, that I suspect that I feel like that can not operate in the opposite way. Like even within a democracy, 
you know, you can quickly move things towards authoritarianism if you decide not to. And and Trump is a kind of good example because because you know, Trump is Trump, Trump doesn't have the same kind of incentives that a lot of African um, leaders do, but he's someone who is fundamentally an egotist who will not allow himself to who couldn't kind of psychologically deal with the idea of losing. Um, so yeah, it's perhaps not rational in the sense that a lot of people would use the word, but like there was a kind of self-interest there. So if we move to like this this election now, um, so we've already I think discussed a little bit about how how the the how Lunga has behaved in power and the kind of actions that he's taken. Um, I wonder if we could uh, briefly kind of go over who Hachalema is and if there are kind of any, um, obviously a, a dividing line has been the authoritarianism of the incumbent government, but are there any other kind of key dividing lines between these two candidates? Are there, are there substantive policy differences going on here? Yeah, I think so. So I think this is a, an election that was dominated by the economy. So to kind of highlight the context for the listeners here, you know, Zambia for the last five years has gone through a period of, you know, it's a, re- a really turbulent economic period. So there have been some grand infrastructure projects, you know, launched by Lungu's, Lungu's government. And, you know, they've been funded by debt. So Zambia owes £12 billion um, pounds to external companies and lenders. I mean, there's rising poverty, there's corruption, there's unemployment. So it's a, a really tough time for Zambia economically um, after a, a kind of a boom period in maybe the 90s. Um, and I think the, the main kind of campaigning line from both Hichilema and Lungu was, I'm the man you can trust with the economy. So for Lungu, it's like, I'm going to invest in Zambia's infrastructure. I'm going to continue to invest in roads and, you know, building new shiny buildings and, and just more infrastructure projects are going to benefit all Zambians so that's kind of his story so he's hoping that the infrastructure projects he's helped to launch you know in the, in the lead up to this election and the ones he's, he's promising will you know be enough for voters to kind of lend him um, their support but for Hichilema he's actually well like well no look at these unsustainable levels of debt you know I'm going to help attract foreign investment I'm going to help address the unemployment issues for particularly young people in Zambia, so he's he's kind of presents himself as a really you know, level-headed, stable man who's going to come in and really sort the mess out that Lungu's left him. So there were competing visions for the economy and competing visions for what they wanted, but essentially both men promised that the economy would be safe in their hands. And I think ultimately for for Lungu, you know, economic management worked against him. You know, you're going to find it difficult to win an election when you know you have rise inflation, you know debt fueled inflation. You're going to find it very difficult to win an election if that's if that's the case. So I think he ultimately made it difficult for himself in in that sense. But yeah, I guess the, the main kind of dividing line between both of them is the kind of competing visions for the economy. They both promised, you know, good things, but in different ways. So infrastructure versus well, actually, I'm going to address the the, the what. We, um, Hichilem will say are the real issues at hand here, so unemployment and poverty, etc. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. I mean, the the it was it was so repression and eroding civil liberties, creeping authoritarianism, as Mike said, was definitely part of the story. But then another big part, which is one that I think affects everyone, while while you know you kind of have to be interested in politics or um, you, um, so, so issues of democracy aren't necessarily like 
the issues that you can that you can necessarily win elections on, but inflation mm. is because it affects lots of people. And so there was a um, there was a survey by a internet like a policy research center based in in Lusaka in Zambia that found um, you know large swaths of the population had perceived inflation and were actually quite angry and 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 fearful of their future because of inflation. So that that seems to be really important it's called the the policy research center is called cuts international um it was based on on nationwide representative surveys um so that was yeah that was i think definitely a big a big deal for the election yeah yeah i agree with that and i i think that if you like lots of successful authoritarian regimes are often the ones where the economy continues to grow quite quickly because and and they almost uses that as a kind of legitimization point it's like okay you don't have democracy but you have kind of a better standard of living um and zambia is already as i understand it actually despite being relatively democratic by african standards still quite poor even compared to other sub-saharan african countries so um so yeah obviously that economic stuff has to some extent more of an impact than in a lot of other countries I think it's also important to note that there was a sort of regional or regional slash ethnic or kind of linguistic distinction between the two parties as well. Um, and it's my understanding, I'm, I'm, I'm by no means an expert on Zambian politics, but it's my understanding that um, that the the PF, the Patriotic Front, has a stronghold in the in the in the northeast eastern part of the country, specifically among Bemba, uh, the Bemba linguistic group, although not exclusively, while the mm. um, while Hichilema's party tends to have a stronghold in the southwest of the country, and there is some identity politics going on in the sense that Sata brought in cabinet members and 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 so did Lungu of other regions in the Northeast in an attempt mm. to kind of like secure more votes from, from that region um, because mm. the region is not like uniformly Bemba speaking. Um, and, and I really don't think that these identities are like essential, right? I think they're, you know, the product of a lot of politics and that they're fluid obviously and that they're non-deterministic, right? And and so much, but they count. I mean, they count for at least some percentage of the votes, right? Some or some, it does sway mm. part of the electorate. Um, and, you know, it happens all over the world that certain identity sort of formations can actually yeah. result in, in bigger electoral backing. But yeah. Hichilema yeah, but, but was able to both maintain the stronghold and then also obtain lots of votes from what was considered the traditional stronghold of the PF, right? So, um, kind of, so, 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 so much more fluid than just simply kind of you, you get people from that linguistic group and therefore you have all of their votes. That's not the case at all. But that was, that it, this is part of this kind of the dynamics within Zambian democracy that there is this kind of Northwest versus, sorry, Northeast versus Southwest kind of divide, roughly speaking. Yeah, there definitely is that divide. And what Hichilema was able to do was actually win votes from both, you know, 
natural strongholds of places where you would expect to win votes, but also just across Zambia in general. So I think the story of this election as well is about, you know, discontent with Lungu's regime and the idea that voters, the election almost became a referendum on his management of the economy and voters wanted to punish him. So it's like, if essentially, if you voted for Lungu, you felt he was the man that's going to manage the economy the best and, and, and take Zambia um, forward. If you voted um, against him, obviously you, you felt that Hichilema was actually the person that was best suited to to kind of manage the economy and to deal with the issues at hand. So Hichilema was essentially able to tell a unifying story that touched all parts of Zambia. And he was like, hey, listen, I, 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 I can make Zambia a better place for all of us. And, you know, it was it was a very unifying message that was able to appeal to, and, and, and we, we'll, we'll speak about it later in short, but despite all the constraints on him, so I think he, he wasn't allowed to campaign in patriotic front strongholds. So despite all of these restraints on him, he was still able to win votes from these very strongholds and um, presenting a very unifying message. So I, that's why, again, I think it's such a remarkable, remarkable victory. Yeah, yeah, that was a kind of weaponization of COVID restrictions for that basis, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I understand as well that um, something that happened in the selection that was getting remarked on was there was um, there was an increase compared to previous Zambian elections of kind of um, ethno-linguistic chauvinist language, particularly against a tribe located in the south of the country, which I forget the name of, but um, there, there was... Um, uh, Tonga. Tonga. Yes, that, yes, that was it, the Tonga. Who, yes, I, I think were specific, specifically attacked by some members of the government. Um, and so, yeah, that I, and, and given that um, Zambia has this kind of long history of, of to some extent, kind of not complete, but a lot of kind of political um, attention has been put towards kind of having kind of a unified, a kind of unified behaviors amongst tribes, tribes. That kind of feels, felt like, I think, a kind of quite important difference to people. And perhaps, I, you know, I doubt it was swaying a huge number of votes, but particularly amongst kind of more middle class voters, you can kind of imagine that as being the kind of thing that might switch them off, even if they're not of that group. Yeah. Maybe also important to note that Hachilema um, kind of named as his vice president, someone from the movement for multi-party democracy. So also mm. tried to kind of like undercut um, the PF's advantage by bringing in an, an, another party into the fold. Of yeah, yeah. I put a lot of effort into, as I understand it, trying to unify opposition parties to a certain extent against the patriotic front, um, which is one reason why the election has has ended up being pretty two party. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that the opposition did a bit better this time than last time. So I think Hichilema was able to get support from, I think, eight parties um, mm. lended him support. So I think in 2016, the opposition to Lungu was less unified, but this time we actually see a more unified collaborative opposition that rise up against mm. um, Lungu's authoritarianism. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of wide front, obviously, I, obviously kind of gives you an immediate sense of credibility as well as all, you know, bringing voters with you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah and, and you look at the 
like the map of electoral districts and who won the majority in, in, in the electoral districts of Zambia. And it is pretty split, kind of red on the left for UPND and then blue on the on the northeast with spots of red. And you don't see the spots of, of blue on the other side. So mm. definitely, yeah. yeah, getting some... Uh, you know, votes from across from across that divide. Yeah, yeah, and and I think Ichilema targeted urban areas. So like mm. these were areas where there was you know a lot of unemployment, and you know there was young people in these areas. And you know, in these areas, I think he's I think he he's referred to as Bali, which is a t- kind of a term of endearment in Zambia. I think it like means it might mean father. I think it does. I think in in these particularly in these parts of of Zambia, he uses this kind of this um this moniker if you like and campaigns use this moniker to kind of reach to young people to the unemployed to some of the disenfranchised mm. people in these kind of rural um, parts of, of Zambia so yeah, yeah. I, just, I think he was just essentially really effective at broadening his appeal and reaching a much large larger base of voters than he otherwise would have reached yeah I think that's an important kind of geographical point as well because um as I understand it Zambia is one of the more urbanized of the sub-Saharan African countries so obviously, it, which to some extent obviously changes campaign dynamics a little bit in terms of who you're targeting. Um, so yeah, that, definitely. I, I I kind of wanted to also talk about the part, like the interaction between the electoral system and the party system in Zambia. I know it's a just a small point, but um, it's interesting that it's a we've basically seen. This is a kind of, in essence, on the ground, a two-party system. So while mm-hmm. there are five parties represented in parliament, at, in the current configuration, not the one that emerged from the most recent election, there are five parties. But you know, the two major parties have over ninety percent of the, or around ninety percent of the seats. In the new election, there's, I think, there's only one. I think there are only three parties represented, and the smallest one only has one. The the the, the third party really only has one seat um and we don't and you know like uh the reason why Kichilema was able to win on the first round is partially because there aren't there isn't a kind of strong a fairly large third party right as as you would generally see in a two-round um presidential system right so we've covered a, kind of the I guess the extreme opposite case of, of this would be Peru where because of the institutional incentives, you get tons of candidates and parties that try and fill in every nook and niche of the electoral spectrum on the first round and then kind of cut deals, negotiate and back one of the two larger candidates in the second round, right? So we had, I think, I don't remember at the time, I don't remember off the top of my head how many presidential candidates there were for the first round. Of the most previous, previous I, I remember previous. there was I remember there were six that I counted that I thought could win. <laughs> right, six six that could win, but like something like thirteen or something that, yeah. that ran. It was crazy, it, right? And yeah, that that was a headache of an episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's 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 what the two round system does. That's the sort of incentives it creates. Yeah. Why why is it not creating that incentive in Zambia? Why is it that? Um, you know, why is it that there were really only two presidential candidates and that mm. one of them was able to win on the first go with over 50% of the vote? Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, I think one reason that's fairly obvious is that Crew has a PR legislature, um, and the, the, the Congress is elected by um, proportional representation, um, whereas Zambia has first past the post. And Zambia historically had first past the post for its um, for its president as well. It's only actually 2016 that they changed the two round systems, albeit they've had some. I referenced earlier to 2001 election, they have had some very fragmented elections in the past, nonetheless. Um, but yeah, so that of the obvious system level explanations, as well as um, this particular election, having seen this kind of gathering of the opposition behind one candidate. Um, but yeah, I don't know if uh, Mike has any thoughts on kind of like social features that might kind of, might be responsible as well. No, I think you guys have covered them quite well. I, yeah, again, I, it's weird because like the kind of ethnic element of politics in Zambia is there, and I think you mm. you, you, you touched on it earlier, but it doesn't seem like. So when I think about other African democracies and thinking about Ethiopia, for example, um, Nigeria, yeah. it doesn't seem to absolutely shape everything about politics in Zambia. It's just something that mm. bubbles under the surface and is important without being essential, if that makes sense. So yeah, you, you cover the kind of social and ethnic elements of, of Zambian politics quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that it, um, it is so, it, it, that, that aspect is so weak, because typically when we think about African democracies, that's like one of the first things that you talk about is like tribal and ethnic elements kind of being the kind of central aspect of politics. And that doesn't seem to be so true here. I kind of wonder if like that's part of that uh, the legacy of of Kounder, of just of so while he you know became a dictator, so you know putting at the heart of like what he was doing, having an ethnic balance in in, in his cabinet and so on, just kind of created kind of sense sense of a set of conventions around how how politics was supposed to work. In, in Zambia that perhaps weren't there um, under other African presidents. Do, do we have anything substantive to say more about the campaign or should we uh, talk yeah, about the Yeah, I think we should now? probably talk of, um Yeah, do you do you want to talk about the campaign a little bit more, Mike? Or are you... Nothing, nothing else to really mention. I think we thought we mentioned there was a bit of violence in the lead up to the campaign, Lungu's mm. kind of nasty tricks. But yeah, I think we've, we've covered most yeah. of it. Yeah, mm. I th- yeah, I think one... Um, significant thing was, didn't they? They completely scrapped the electoral roll. The new one, uh, but which, yeah, is a, a, yeah. a classic trick for trying to disenfranchise. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, there was there was something else as well. So there was a crackdown on social media on election day. Mm. So WhatsApp, Twitter, um, Facebook, there's not Instagram. They were all kind of, I mean, citizens' access to various social networks were limited. And that was kind of Lungu's last authoritarian tactic kind of play um, as the election closed out. So that was on, that was on voting day, I think. Yeah, yeah. That, so, yeah. That's that's interesting. I mean, we saw that happen in Uganda in January of this year yeah, as well. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah it's wild. So, yeah. Yeah, it's something that um, it's something that authoritarian regimes seem to be doing more and more, which is disturbing in and of itself, obviously. Um, yeah, and I think it's important in this context because Zambia's electorate is quite young. 
So social mm. media is quite integral to both kind of activism campaigning and, mm. you know, the kind of dynamics and social interaction between voters. So if you shut that down on, on election day, it's, it's clearly a ploy to disenfranchise voters, to limit the ability of voters to speak to one another, to kind of gather momentum, that kind of last bit of momentum on yeah. voters as well. So yeah. It was a very cynical and, and a deliberate ploy, obviously. Yeah, I think one I think one thing that's kind of made rigging more tricky is that the opposition did a very good parallel pank count so that um it, it so that they were able to I think to some extent we're even leading the electoral commission in terms of releasing results. And obviously that kind of figure is disseminated through social media first and foremost. So in terms of um legitimizing um uh, uh, well the legitimacy of the result i think that, that uh, social media was also probably playing a role um which yeah um so yeah that's um an important and you know slightly frightening aspect of this election but i mean this is this is a case where where um large tech giants could be you know an ally i guess of civil society because it's in their interest to not disappear on the most important day of the of the political calendar, um, not be shut down. So yeah, I, I wonder why there wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. It's also kind of scary how this is no longer a big deal. Like it's not no longer becomes like it's no longer. Yeah, it's no longer a shock mm. when um, when regimes start shutting down social media on election day. Yeah. Which, yeah. I, I think it's, it's it just, itself. yeah, it's become very common, I think, just among these, uh, among regimes of this type to seek to take back some control over social media, given that it was, I mean, 10 years ago, we would have been talking about social media as this kind of great leveler and enabler of democratic democratization and, and uh, democratic revolutions and at the time of the Arab Spring and stuff like that. Mm. But I, I think it's very, its potential has very definitely been recognized by authoritarians now and yeah. They have sought to take measures to, to combat that very definitely. Um, mm. You see that a lot. I mean, it's obviously a country that I know reasonably well in Turkey. They see a lot of this at the moment. Um, mm. They're trying to sort of establish some kind of censorship over social media. Um, and not just that as well. For years, Wikipedia was banned in Turkey because it just offered. It offered because they it had a, what we would view as a neutral page about the AKP basically and Erdogan stuff and had a page about the Armenian genocide and <laughs> it yeah. wasn't slanted at all so yeah that was that was taken down for some excuse for a long time um you couldn't couldn't access that at all yeah right <laughs> okay Very so the the results of this election was we were thinking, I think everyone was thinking before the election, this was going to be a very tight context, um, much like the 2016 result. But in the end, it, it actually really wasn't. Um, and mm. Hitchilema won about 59% of the vote, um, which is quite, quite a crushing defeat, really. Um, so, yeah, but this hasn't stopped Lungu um, from, from kind of crying foul, um, using tactics which we... Um, which we have sort of started to see pop up around the world um, with the kind of increasing frequency, um, obviously, um, most famously now in the United States as well. Um, but yeah, um, what has been the, the effect of this? Is, is anyone taking this seriously? Is there a chance that this will kind of destabilise Zambia in, in some way? 
No, not at all. So, <laughs> I mean, the ele- the, I, I'm laughing because the election result is just so, it's staggering to me still because mm. this was expected to be this really tight contest. It's going to go to second round runoff and it's going to be really tight. He absolutely obliterates him. He wins 59% of the votes, mm. <laughs> of the votes cast. This is genuinely remarkable what, what happened in this election. And, you know, Lungu's played what some people are calling the Trump card. So it's like, oh, you know, these elections weren't free and fair. It's been rigged against us, you know. Where is me? All of this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. And, like, it's, it's just fallen on deaf ears, really, because I think, look, there's this history of, I mean, there have always been accusations of rigged elections. Yeah. So I think in seeing the opposition accused Lungu of rigging the election is probably not... You know, there were there was probably some malpractice from from Lingu um, at mm-hmm. the election because he is uh, he is an authoritarian, right? But mm-hmm. you know, I think this time the margin of victory was just so large that even if Lingu did try to kind of rig the election, it would just it was just virtually yeah. impossible for mm-hmm. him to do so because he was just yeah. absolute. He was obliterated in a way even he did not expect. Like. I think going into this election, Hichilema was the marginal favourite because there was this kind of growing tide of momentum towards him. And mm-hmm. the economy was performing so poorly under Lingu and, and you know, he was losing popularity even amongst his kind of core base of voters that there was a sense that, you know, the tide is shifting and, and we were going to see it, a change of this election. But, you know, again, just 59% in the first round. Yeah. It's just a remarkable, it's a genuinely remarkable victory. I'm going to keep saying it because I, I was, when, you let, when the results came through, I was like, surely there's a typo or something. <laughs> it's yeah, <can't> yeah. <laughs> this didn't happen, but it, it, it literally did. And I think, I think Lingu has now conceded, conceded defeat and he has congratulated HLM on his victory. So yeah, his complaints of like, you know, this, this wasn't a free and fair election, just, just fell on deaf ears ultimately. Yeah, I think one of the early, oh. I think what, it definitely shocked me. I think one of the first, first pieces of election commentary I read was headlined, um, Lungu um, can't win a fair election. He can't lose an unfair one. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I think it's probably a good argument that this was an unfair election in his favour. Um, <laughs> not kind of, you know, fully, fully to the point of rigging. There may have been some um, vote buying and so on. I think there's incredible allegations of that. Uh, uh, you're playing that. But uh, like, um, but like, clearly, clearly, things were. Sl- it was not a level playing field, um, from you know everything we've spoken about. Um, but he still kind of lost by this kind of gigantic point, which is a good reminder that mm. sometimes it's possible to be so unpopular that like you really mm. need to go quite far in rigging election to um, to lose to win. Yeah. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were thinking about gerrymandering that there's there's, there's certain senses where that can like really backfire on you. And I sort of think yeah. you can sort of say similar things about, about these kind of tactics in that you can do it in such a way that it's clever and that people don't really notice quite so much, a lot of people anyway, that you're, um, that you're mm. kind of rigging the election in your favour. Or you can do it quite stupidly and people notice decide they don't like it and make sure to vote you out and yeah. this seems like this may have been a bit of a factor in this one um but yeah that yeah. the, the people just didn't like that he wasn't being very democratic and yeah paid the price for it, and it it probably all links together with the economy aspect as well in that mm. 
if people people feel like their standard of living going down in the way that they seem to have done in the last few years under Lungu, like they will make up their mind and decide they don't like you, and then everything that they see about you is is seen through the prism of I already don't like this guy, and now he's doing this. <laughs> like, um, yeah, like, essentially that, right? So, like, I think the economic situation is, is almost being tied to his authoritarianism. So, when he's acting in authoritarian ways when it comes to the election and the campaign. This is only adding to the kind of discontent people feel towards him because they blame people now actively or in Zambia actively blamed him for the kind of standard of living, you know, the, the, the mm. inflation, all of these things. So yeah. <laughs> on top of that, he's trying to erect all these barriers in front of the opposition. He's complaining about you know free and fair elections. This this all works against him. He yeah. was just he, he literally yeah like you said Chris he was kind of <laughs> in a way you know all these barriers he tried to erect in front of the opposition were actually barriers <laughs> or you know more things that people who didn't like him were able to throw at him and be like you know this guy mm. this guy doesn't have our best interests at heart and we need to vote him out yeah and, and of course there was a link between his authoritarianism and the economy in terms of for example the corrupt way that the economy was being run yeah, uh, yeah. because yeah, uh, as I understand it like lots of his he was doing quite a lot and his party was doing quite a lot to to maintain the position of economic allies um regard you know um and obviously like corruption intersects with it with socioeconomic conditions blah blah you know blah blah blah, blah. like all this stuff you know it, it becomes quite easy to start linking you know, it, 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 we you know start thinking. Well, we'd be a richer country if we weren't run by thieves. Um, it, yeah, it's a classic thing that I see in Eastern Europe, and I imagine that for it, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a kind of similar narrative happening in in um, Sub-Saharan Africa at times too. Okay. Um. So, what is uh, what what is Hitchelema's prospects? Do you think? Do you think he's going to succumb to this 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 trend of or becoming more authoritarian when they get in power, or, or do we think he offers a, a sort of a gen, more genuine break with the with the past on this? It honestly remains to be seen. I think you know. I think he this election should be understood as both an endorsement of him, so people have faith that he's going to, you know, restore or you know help move to a more bright economic future. But I think this all this is, is a fundamental objective of the patriotic front and of Lungu's regime so there is a bit of like as I mentioned earlier this was a referendum on Lungu's leadership and his reign mm. so it's it's not that like oh my gosh we really we're desperate to have this man in charge and people have you know faith in him but I do think it is a case of a case of wait and siege because we have seen mm. this story happen so many times democratic force comes in he's going to protect human rights to make everyone's lives better democratizing force becomes authoritarian and and is yeah. now the the one that people are trying to vote out so i would i would urge to caution but i do feel optimistic based on i think hlm's story really is a one of resilience and one of a person who i think he's someone that's you know generally outside of a story in zambia and has always fought to be in power and eventually try and represent Zambians in the best possible way. So this was the sixth time he'd run for election, <laughs> you know? Mm. So mm. the story here is if you, if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I generally do think he is someone that, you know, I, 
literally sort of listening to some of his speeches from you know the kind of people in Zambia is that this man is someone that's tried to you know be elected and he really does have our best interest at heart so I do feel optimistic but also would kind of version notes of caution just because we have mm. seen this story before yeah yeah and I, I think the societal incentives are certainly you know seem to be strong in that direction but hopefully hopefully this might be a new break um, mm. Yeah, and he has some big challenges ahead. Again, like the economic progress reverse. So it's such a significant way under the PF that he's going to spend a lot of his early months and years in office <laughs> addressing some of those, um, yeah, some of the economic situation. And, you know, he's promised to revive mining. He's, um, mm. you know, Zambia is Africa's second largest copper producer. So he's, you know, trying to focus on kind of, you know, copper sort of thing so yeah he has lots of challenges but yeah he's someone that's wanted to be the president of Zambia for a very very long time and now he's in post yeah the jury's out basically let's see how he does yeah absolutely we quite last time when I was in a pod about the state of African democracy and often what happens in Africa I think it happens in different continents but it does pour kind of particularly to Africa is like when there is this kind of positive victory so uh, someone who claims to be in favor of democracy when he wins we're, we're often thinking about or he or she wins we're often thinking about okay what does this mean for the region maybe or what does this mean for africa as a continent and kind of politics in africa i think the same has happened now right so if you know there were fears that zambia was going to regress that you know zambia's democracy was, uh, under lungu it was regressing right you know that he was an authoritarian and there would mm. Zambia would become the new Zimbabwe, where we do see this kind of authoritarianism, where we do see, um, you know, real, real, real problems, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I, what I would say is, a lot of people are saying, you know, Zambia and Uganda can learn lessons from, from Zimbabwe and, and Uganda can learn lessons from from Zambia. I would say that you know we need to be a bit cautious when we say that, just because. There were some conditions in place in both in, in Uganda that don't exist in Uganda or or Zimbabwe. So, so um, in, in in Zimbabwe, there's not really like a memory of you know replacing the government via the ballot box um, that gives voters the confidence that they can go to the ballot box and um, you know mobilize against an authoritarian. So in in, mm. in Zambia, we've we've had we do have this this history of you know democratic and peaceful transitions of power. Yes, we do see switches back to authoritarianism, but there is still this kind of this visible history that people can can, yeah. can see. Um, so I, I I think that the, the hope for me is that what actually happens is in, in in other maybe countries in Africa is that we do see some of the things that civil society did. So civil society was was, was quite important when it came to encouraging people to vote, um, explaining the kind of voting process and why it's important to vote. I hope we see civil society play an important role in, in, in other African democracies. But again, very, very unfortunately, some, in some of the countries, there just isn't this history of, you know, peaceful transitions of power at the ballot box that, you know, were quite, I feel, really, really important in Zambia because we do see young, young people turn out in large numbers to vote because they, they believe their votes and their voices matter. Um, so, yeah, those are my concluding thoughts, basically, on lessons for other African countries, again, mm. just to... A note of caution, maybe a caveat mm-hmm. is, is necessary. Yeah, it's it's always very easy to take any region, but I think particularly Africa and imagine that 
you know, it's all the same. <laughs> um, yeah. Draw too many conclusions across one another. Like it, there's certainly learnings to be had here about democracy in Africa, but um, one of those is one of those probably should be. It's not all the same. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's very it's a heartening election result. Okay, well, I think we'll um, we'll leave it there for for Zambia. Um, absolutely great having you on the podcast again, Mike. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope we'll we'll see you again on here on here before too long. Uh, you know, whenever you invite me on, I'll be happy to come on. So yeah, oh. uh, thanks for having me, and I'll speak to you guys soon. Thank you for coming Thank- on. Thank you, Mike. It's great seeing you and talking yeah. to you. Yeah, take care, guys. See you soon. All the best. And uh, yeah, everyone else, we will see you next week. And please do rate and subscribe um, wherever you're listening to this, as usual. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.